Welcome to the Book of Mormon, a masterclass. This podcast is designed to help you come closer to Jesus Christ by seriously studying the Book of Mormon. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltoniii.com slash the Book of Mormon. Before Elder David A. Bednar was called to the Quorum of the Twelve, he worked as a university professor. During this time, he and a colleague wrote a textbook together. On one occasion, Elder Bednar shared how writing this textbook strengthened his testimony that Joseph Smith could not have written the Book of Mormon. Elder Bednar said, One of the books I authored with a colleague is 650 pages long, contains 17 chapters, and took us two years to write. The colleague with whom I wrote this book also has a PhD, which means that we have more than 16 years of formal higher education between the two of us. It is a remarkable experience to receive a box of these brand new books from the publisher. I opened up the box and thumbed through one of the books. As I did so, I looked out the window of my office and asked myself the question, why did you write this book? When you really think about it, investing so much time and effort in a project that so quickly becomes obsolete is rather foolish. As I was pondering that question, the thought came to me, because now you know by experience that Joseph Smith could not have written the Book of Mormon. With eight years of university training, with two years of very dedicated work, with an editorial staff, with personal computers, with spell checkers, and the sources online, with the internet, and the other resources that are so readily available. When I picked up the book that I had written and opened it up, I still found mistakes. And within a matter of 12 months, this book upon which I had worked so hard and so long was obsolete and had to be revised. I know as an author, and by personal experience that Joseph Smith could not and did not write the Book of Mormon. I've never published a textbook, but I have written several books. And like Elder Bednar, I know from personal experience as an author that there's no way Joseph Smith could have written the Book of Mormon. Today, we're going to explore several details about the translation process of the Book of Mormon that make it clear that this was not Joseph Smith's endeavor. The Book of Mormon is a miraculous work. It's a testimony of Jesus Christ written by ancient prophets. Let's begin by exploring a timeline of the Book of Mormon translation. So in September of 1827, Joseph receives the plates from the hill. He's not able to do a lot of translation in the first few months because all of the persecution surrounding him. So Joseph and Emma moved to Harmony, Pennsylvania about 270 miles away so that Joseph Smith can have some time to focus on the translation. During this time, his friend Martin Harris comes to assist. During the winter of 1828, Joseph Smith copies some of the characters from the gold plates, and Martin Harris will take these characters to New York to verify whether Joseph's translation is correct. Speaking of this event, Martin Harris said the following, I presented the characters which had been translated with the translation thereof, to Professor Charles Anthon, a gentleman celebrated for his literary attainments. Professor Anthon stated that the translation was correct, more so than any he had before seen translated from the Egyptian. I then showed him those which were not yet translated. He gave me a certificate certifying to the people of Palmyra that they were true characters and that the translation of such of them as had been translated was also correct. I took the certificate with me and put it into my pocket 
and was just leaving the house when Mr. Anthony called me back and asked me how the young man found out that there were gold plates in the place where he had found them. I answered that an angel of God had revealed it unto him. He then said to me, let me see that certificate. I gave it to him and he tore it to pieces, saying that there was no such thing now as ministering of angels and that if I would bring the plates to him, he would translate them. I informed him that part of the plates were sealed and that I was forbidden to bring them. He replied, I cannot read a sealed book. I left him and went to Dr. Mitchell, another noted scholar, who sanctioned what Professor Anthon had said respecting both the characters and the translation. One of the things I think is so interesting about this account is it seems that Nephi prophesied about it centuries in advance. If we were to turn to 2 Nephi chapter 27, where Nephi is quoting from some passages of Isaiah, we read, take the words which are not sealed and deliver them to another, that he may show them to the learned. Are you seeing the pattern here? Joseph Smith takes words that have been translated, delivers them to Martin Harris. He takes them to the learned, Professor Anthon. Professor Anthon says, bring me the book. I'll read it. Martin Harris says, I can't bring the book. It is sealed. Professor Anthon says, I cannot read it. In 2 Nephi 27, we see centuries in advance that the Lord knew what was going to happen. To me, this is a reminder that Jesus Christ was in charge of the Book of Mormon translation. He knew what would happen centuries in advance. Just after this passage from 2 Nephi 27, we read, I am God, and I am a God of miracles. And I will show unto the world that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's interesting that later in life, Professor Anthony gives his own version of this encounter. He completely denies giving any support for the translation that Joseph Smith had done. So who do we believe, Professor Anthon or Martin Harris? Let me give you an analogy. Imagine I told you that I was working on a project. This project is really important. Would you be willing to support me in this project? One time I asked a group of about 250 people. I said, would you help me by giving me a piece of gum? Lots of people were willing to give me a piece of gum. Then I said, well, I'm kind of hungry and it's hard for me to work on this project when I'm hungry. Who'd be willing to buy me lunch? There was a few people who were willing to buy me lunch. Then I said, guys, I'm going to need a little bit more financial support. Who's willing to Venmo me $100 right now? Well, I got a few requests from people asking me to give them $100, but nobody Venmoed me $100. Then I said, who'd be willing to give me your car? Nobody. Who'd be willing to loan me $78,000? As you can imagine, no one wanted to loan me $78,000. But think of it. After this experience with Professor Anthon, Martin Harris is going to mortgage his farm so that the Book of Mormon can be printed. The value of his farm in today's dollars is about $80,000. Martin Harris truly believed in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. That's why I believe Martin Harris's account, that he left New York feeling confidence that this translation project was correct. I wouldn't base my testimony of the Book of Mormon on this detail for Martin Harris's life, but it's one of those powerful pieces of evidence. Now, in the spring of 1828, Joseph Smith begins translating the Book of Mormon with Martin Harris and Emma Smith acting as scribes. While Joseph Smith himself didn't talk a lot about the translation process of the Book of Mormon, in 1879, Emma later recounted in an interview with her son 
what happened during the translation. She said, my belief is that the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. When acting as a scribe, your father would dictate to me hour after hour. And when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could do this. But for one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. Emma brings up a fascinating point. Have you ever written a research paper? You're there typing away on the paper. You go to lunch, you come back. What's the first thing you do? Scroll up, see where you've been so you can pick up right where you left off. Emma tells us that Joseph never did this. Again, I wouldn't base my testimony of the Book of Mormon on this detail, but it's an interesting evidence from the translation process of the Book of Mormon that there's no way Joseph Smith could have written this. Now, when you think of the translation process of the Book of Mormon, which of these four images comes to your mind? Joseph Smith would be our best source for information on the translation process of the Book of Mormon. But unfortunately, he does not give very many details. On one occasion, he said, it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and it was not expedient for him to relate these things. When we look at accounts of those who were present for the translation of the Book of Mormon, most frequently they talk about the translation process happening through a stone and a hat. For example, Emma Smith said, In writing for your father, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him, he sitting with his face buried in his hat, with the stone in it, and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. He had neither manuscript nor book to read from. If he had had anything of the kind, he could not have concealed it from me. If we take Emma's words, combined with Martin Harris, David Whitmer, and others who were close to the translation process, it appears that there may have been multiple ways that the Book of Mormon was translated. Often Joseph Smith would put his face into a hat and use a seer stone in the translation process. I think it's valuable to note that Emma, Martin, David, they don't recount this as being strange or unusual. To us, we might look at that and think, oh, I don't quite understand that. But to those who were closest to the translation, it seemed like a normal way to translate. The Gospel Topics essay on the translation of the Book of Mormon says, apparently for convenience, Joseph often translated with the single seer stone rather than the two stones bound together to form the interpreters. These two instruments, the interpreters and the seer stone were apparently interchangeable. Some people have balked at this claim of physical instruments used in the divine translation process, but such aids to facilitate the communication of God's power and inspiration are consistent with accounts in Scripture. In addition to the Urim and Thummim, the Bible mentions other physical instruments used to access God's power, the rod of Aaron, a brass serpent, holy anointing oils, the Ark of the Covenant, and even dirt from the ground mixed with saliva to heal the eyes of a blind man. If you're interested in learning more about the details of the translation of the Book of Mormon, I really recommend the podcast Church History Matters. They have a several episode series on the translation process and I've linked to it on the course website. But for now, let's go back to our translation timeline. By June of 1828, Joseph had translated 116 pages from the Book of Mormon. 
And Martin really wanted to take it to show us why. And I think we can be sympathetic and understand why. Imagine you had loaned me $78,000 for my special project. And now your spouse is wondering what happened to that money. Martin's wife, Lucy, did not believe in Joseph Smith. And so Martin wanted to take the 116 pages to prove to her that they were really doing something of value. Joseph Smith asked once, twice, had a bad feeling about it. But on the third time, the Lord said, well, it's kind of up to you. So Joseph let Martin borrow the manuscript. Shortly after Martin left, Emma gave birth to a baby that died. Emma hovered herself between life and death, and Joseph stayed with her. As Emma began to recover, she encouraged Joseph Smith to travel back to New York to find out what had happened to the manuscript. To make a long story short, Martin had lost it. When he saw Joseph Smith, he cried out, I have lost my soul. When Joseph heard this news, he said, all is lost. Let's pause for a moment and consider a lesson from this story. Of course, it would have been wonderful if Joseph Smith had retained the 116 pages. We all wish that we had them. Have you made a mistake in your life that you deeply regret? Here, Joseph Smith is 23 years old and he's lost sacred records. But I think it's interesting that he didn't give up. There was still hope. Jesus Christ said to him, thou art still chosen and art again called to the work. He said, be faithful and continue on. Put in the context of his entire life, the 116 pages did not ruin everything. You may have made serious mistakes in your life, as I have, but that doesn't mean all hope is lost. We can be faithful and continue on. Later in life, Joseph Smith never refers back to this incident. He doesn't say, oh, I wish when I was younger I had kept those 116 pages. No, he moves forward with faith in Jesus Christ. You and I can do the same thing with the things we regret. It's interesting that the Lord had a plan from the beginning. He knew about the lost 116 pages. Back in 1 Nephi chapter 9, we learned that Nephi, who had already created the large plates, was inspired by the Lord to create the small plates. Mormon's abridgment of the large plates became the 116 pages of the Book of Mormon that were lost. The small plates that Nephi was commanded later to make are what we have today as 1 Nephi through the Book of Omni. You can imagine Nephi wondering, why am I supposed to make this second record? In 1 Nephi chapter 9, Nephi says, The Lord commanded me to make these small plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. With centuries of hindsight, you and I know why. About a thousand years after Nephi wrote, Mormon wrote, he felt inspired to include the small plates. He might have wondered why. I've already spent a lot of time creating an abridgment of the large plates of Nephi. These first 116 pages I've written are awesome. As Mormon recorded his insertion of the small plates, he said, I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord. I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come. This is a valuable reminder that Jesus Christ was in charge of the translation process of the Book of Mormon. Centuries in advance, he had made a plan for those lost 116 pages. To me, this is a reminder that when things go wrong in our lives, and they will go wrong, we will make bad choices. We'll be harmed by the bad choices of others. We live in a fallen world where 
things just go wrong sometimes. But Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ can take even tragedies, even things that go wrong, even our deepest regrets, and still make up for them. In the case of Joseph Smith in the last 116 pages, he lost the ability to translate for a time. And so returning to our timeline, by September of 1828, nothing in terms of the current Book of Mormon we have today has been translated. Joseph did not translate very much over the following six months. He had to focus on working hard to provide for his family, and he didn't have a full-time scribe. However, the Lord promised him that one would soon come. During this time, a man named Oliver Cowdery was teaching school in the Palmyra area. He lived with the Smith family and learned about the gold plates. Over time, Oliver prayed and felt that he should travel to Harmony, where Joseph and Emma lived, to see if he could help with the translation of the Book of Mormon. Oliver arrived on April 5th, and by April 7th, Joseph Smith had begun translating the Book of Mormon with Oliver acting as his scribe. Between April 7th and June 30th, the entire Book of Mormon was translated. But they were doing more during this time than just translating the Book of Mormon. Consider what scholar John Welch explained. The translation of the Book of Mormon took place in 85 days. During this time, the prophet and his scribes also took time to eat, to sleep, to seek employment, to receive the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, and to make at least one, possibly two trips to Colesville, 30 miles away, to convert and baptize Hiram and Samuel Smith, who came to Harmony at this time, to receive and record 13 revelations that are now sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, to move from Harmony to Fayette, to acquire the Book of Mormon copyright, to preach a few days and baptize several near Fayette, and to begin making arrangements for the Book of Mormon's publication. Wow, think of what you did on your summer vacation. That's basically the amount of time that Joseph Smith has while he's a young adult. A few weeks to translate the Book of Mormon to do all of these things. Professor Welch continues, conservatively estimated, this leaves 65 or fewer working days on which the prophet and his scribes could have translated. That works out to be an average of eight pages per day. At such a pace, only about a week could have been taken to translate all of 1 Nephi, a day and a half for King Benjamin's speech. Let that sink in for a moment. That means the Psalm of Nephi was written in an hour or two. The powerful experience of Jesus Christ visiting the Nephites in 3 Nephi 11 took less than a few hours to translate. Again, I wouldn't base my testimony of the Book of Mormon on the speed of the translation, but this is another detail that shows there is no way Joseph Smith could have made this up. As his wife Emma said, Joseph could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter. The Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I now want to turn to another detail of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Let me introduce this with a question. Imagine you're a full-time missionary. You and your companion are knocking on doors. The person who answers says, if the Book of Mormon is really true, why have thousands of changes been made to it? In response to you, A, kindly rebuke the person and say, there have been no changes to the Book of Mormon. B, dust your feet off and run away. C, start crying because you're scared and confused. Or D, say, that's a great question. We'd love to talk with you more about these changes. In fact, I took a masterclass that discussed this. May we come in. I never want you to be caught off guard about this topic. It's a topic that one scholar, Royal Skousen, has made his entire life's work. It's the topic of the critical text of the Book of Mormon. 
Now, when you hear the phrase critical text, you might think we're criticizing the text of the Book of Mormon, but that's not what we're talking about. We're finding the earliest manuscripts. Critical text projects are done on all sorts of ancient works, like the Bible or even the works of Shakespeare. When it comes to the Book of Mormon, it's easier than the Bible, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than you might think. There are several important early manuscript editions of the Book of Mormon. Let's explore some of these. First, we have the original manuscript. This is what Oliver Cowdery was handwriting while Joseph Smith was translating. This edition had chapters, but they are different than the chapters that we have today, and there were no verses. When the saints went west, the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon didn't go with them. Joseph Smith had buried it in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo house with some other things, kind of like a time capsule. But unfortunately, by the time this was discovered by Louis Biedemann, who is Emma Smith's second husband, a lot of the original manuscript had been damaged by water. To make matters worse, as various church members traveled through Nauvoo, Biedemann would give them a page of the original manuscript as a souvenir. Today, great efforts have been made to collect any known fragments of the original manuscript and we have about 28% of it in existence today. Second is the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith had already lost 116 pages, so he didn't want to lose any more. So prior to taking the Book of Mormon to be printed, he had Oliver Cowdery handwrite the entire Book of Mormon. This is the printer's manuscript. So the original was kept safe, and it was the printer's manuscript that was used to actually do the typesetting of the Book of Mormon. Now, imagine that you had to handwrite the entire Book of Mormon. How many mistakes would you make? I know I would make a ton because I can barely read cursive. On average, we find two to three mistakes per page as we go from the original to the printer's edition. This definitely is not to be critical of Oliver Cowdery. I am sure I would have made more mistakes. Well, Oliver Cowdery eventually gives the printer's manuscript to David Whitmer, who passes it on to his descendants, and eventually it comes into the hands of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now the Community of Christ Church, and in 2017, they sold it to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So most, almost all of the printer's manuscript exists today. The next manuscript that we want to think about is the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. Notice that when the Book of Mormon was translated, there was no punctuation. The Book of Mormon punctuation was added by John Gilbert, who wasn't a member of the church, as he was typesetting the Book of Mormon. Think about how important punctuation can be. For example, is it, let's eat, grandma, or let's eat, grandma? Here's a similar one. Is it, I love cooking my dogs and my family, or I love cooking my dogs and my family? When we read the Book of Mormon, remember that punctuation was added later. So sometimes the placement of a comma or whether something is an exclamation point or a question mark or a period, these are all things that we can think about and consider. Fourth is the 1837 edition. In this second printing of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith compared the 1830 edition to the printer's manuscript and corrected hundreds of small errors like grammars and typos. And in some cases, Joseph Smith himself made specific edits to the text. The last edition to be published in Joseph Smith's lifetime was the 1840 edition. Here, Joseph made some changes to better align the text with the original manuscript and again made some minor changes to the text. In 1879, we see a really important edition. 
Here, for the first time, we have verses added to the Book of Mormon, and new chapter breaks are added. These were done by Elder Orson Pratt of the Quorum of the Twelve under the direction of the First Presidency. Some minor changes were also made to the text to clarify meaning. In 1920, Elder James E. Talmadge, under the direction of the First Presidency, created an updated version of the Book of Mormon that, for the first time, had double columns. It's important to note that Elder Talmadge and those who were working with him did not have access to the printer's manuscript or the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. As of today, the final major edition of the Book of Mormon was the 1981 version. New chapter summaries and footnotes appeared, and a few significant textual changes were made to bring the text in conformity to earlier manuscripts, like the printer's manuscript, that the committee in 1981 was able to access that Elder Talmadge didn't have access to. So all of this is really interesting history, but why is it important? In some ways, it's not. These are fun details to know, but it's not like there's major changes made in the Book of Mormon. There's never a verse that's like, thou shalt be baptized, and it was changed to be, thou shalt not be baptized. There are lots of changes that have been made, but they're mostly grammar, spelling, punctuation. And I think this is valuable for us to know in case anyone ever says, there have been thousands of changes made to the Book of Mormon. Well, when you hear it like that, it sounds like, oh, this is crazy. But when I understand the process of going from an original manuscript to a printer's manuscript, to typesetting, to punctuation being added, all of a sudden you can see why lots of changes would need to be made over time. There are some details like the chapter breaks that I think can be really helpful. It seems like during the translation process, Joseph Smith sees something that signals to him that there's a break. Going back to the original chapter breaks can sometimes be useful. It helps us see how Nephi or Mormon were breaking up chunks of text. For example, in Alma chapters 30 through 35, we tend to read those one chapter at a time and see them as discrete stories. But originally, Alma chapters 30 through 35 were one chapter. We might read them differently if we see them as part of a whole story that Mormon was trying to tell. Finally, I think there are lots of interesting details we can learn when we look closely at the textual variants of the Book of Mormon. Sometimes there are some unique details that, while they aren't complete game changers in our understanding of the Book of Mormon, are useful to know. Let me just share two examples with you. The original manuscript of Alma 39.13 says, Return unto them and acknowledge your faults and repair that wrong which ye have done. Unfortunately, due to a blot of ink in the original manuscript, as Oliver Cowdery is copying this over into the printer's manuscript, what he copies down is, retain that wrong which ye have done. So the 1830 edition says, acknowledge your faults and retain that wrong which ye have done. That clearly doesn't make sense. So in 1920, as Elder Talmadge was preparing his edition, he drops the word retain. Remember, he doesn't have access to the printers or the original manuscript. So we then have the text that is now in our current edition, acknowledge your faults and that wrong which ye have done. It's still good, but not as strong as the original manuscript. Acknowledge your faults and repair that wrong which you've done. Again, this isn't a game changer, but I think it's kind of cool to notice that when we go back to the original texts, it's even stronger. Here's one more example. In our current edition of the Book of Mormon, in Alma chapter 43, we read, The Nephites were compelled alone to withstand against the Lamanites, who were a compound of Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael, and all those who had dissented from the Nephites, who were Amalekites, 
and Zoramites and the descendants of the priests of Noah. Now those descendants were as numerous nearly as were the Nephites. If we stop and think about it, there's something kind of funny in this verse. Notice how it says that the descendants of the priests of Noah were as numerous as the Nephites. Well, how could this be? Let's go back in time. The descendants of the priests of Noah, this is talking about when King Noah's priests kidnapped 24 Lamanite women in about the year 135 BC. Now in Alma chapter 43, we're in the year 75 BC. So how is it possible that in just 60 years, 24 couples have made a population as numerous nearly as the Nephites, which we know was numbering in the tens of thousands? That just doesn't make sense. But if we go back to the original manuscript, notice that it says the Nephites were compelled alone to withstand against the Lamanites and all those which had descended from the Nephites, which were Amlicites and Zoramites, and the descendants of the priests of Noah. Now those dissenters were as numerous nearly as were the Nephites. Notice that both descendants and dissenters are misspelled in the original manuscript. So as Oliver Cowdery is copying this down, he misreads dissenters and thinks it's descendants. As Royal Skousen wrote, what the original text says here is much more reasonable, that there were now almost as many Nephite dissenters among the Lamanites as there were Nephites proper, a very ominous situation. So I've shared two examples of how the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon has an even stronger reading than our current manuscript today. But as you've seen, these aren't game changers. I've never had a student raise their hand and say, wait a second, Alma chapter 43 verses 13 and 14 doesn't make sense. These are small details. But if you're interested in small details, then you might be thinking to yourself, Brother Hilton, I wish I could see the earliest manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Well, wish granted. Royal Skousen has created what he calls the Book of Mormon, the earliest text, where he takes the original manuscript where possible and the printer's manuscript if the original isn't available to help recreate the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. A version of this is online for free, and I've linked to it on the course website. Now, some people might wonder, how is it possible that there could be grammar errors? How is it possible that the punctuation wasn't perfect? Remember what Moroni wrote on the title page of the Book of Mormon. If there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. I love that the narrators of the Book of Mormon acknowledge that there could be mistakes in the process. This does not need to challenge our testimony of the Book of Mormon. Well, we could keep going. Today, we focused on the translation of the Book of Mormon into English, but it's also been translated into other languages. The first was Danish in 1851. Later came Spanish and Portuguese. Today, the Book of Mormon has been translated into more than 100 languages. One of my favorite ways to read the Book of Mormon today, and especially to share it with others, is the Book of Mormon app. If you're not familiar with this, you can download it wherever you get your apps. The Book of Mormon app is available in multiple languages. It's so easy to share. Within the app, you can chat with a missionary. You can find a local meeting house. It's really designed to be friendly to those who are encountering the Book of Mormon for the first time. There's easy access to the Book of Mormon videos. President Benson talked about his vision of flooding the earth with the Book of Mormon. I can't think of a better way to do that than with the Book of Mormon app. With just a couple of clicks, I'm easily able to give someone a QR code that allows them to download the Book of Mormon app on their own phone in their own language. They'll then have complete access to the text, the videos. What a great way to flood the earth with the Book of Mormon. 
It's amazing to consider how we've gone from a lost 116 pages from an original manuscript of the Book of Mormon all the way to an app that I can share across the world. As we wrap up our time together today, I want to look at what was written on the last leaf of the gold plates. Moroni recorded that the purpose of the Book of Mormon was to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever, and also to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. Today, as we've discussed the miraculous coming forth of the Book of Mormon, I hope we don't forget the purposes behind it for us to know the great things the Lord has done for our ancestors, for us to know of his covenants, and to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. The Book of Mormon truly is a marvelous work and a wonder, and I'm so excited to start diving into it as we begin with First Nephi in our next class. Thank you for listening today. We hope you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps others discover it. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash the Book of Mormon. We hope to see you there.